Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 10, second part of the chapter. I'm going to cover verses 22 through 42 today. I'm going to call this passage, The Jews Try to Stone Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. Now, we have previously talked about a lot of events that happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Dedication is in December. Feast of Tabernacles in September, October, several months earlier. The events that Jesus, these events are all covered exclusively in John. Jesus was the good shepherd. Jesus healed the man born blind. He washed himself in the pool of Siloam. Jesus and the Jews accuse each other of being the devil. They argue about who were the true descendants of Abraham. Jesus proclaims in the temple that he is the light of the world. He deals with the woman caught in adultery. And he talks about himself being the streams of living water. All of that stuff has happened in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we're going to fast forward to the Feast of Dedication. Now in doing so, we're going to skip a lot of the details of Jesus' Judean ministry, the, the last Judean ministry. These are mostly recorded in Luke. Let me tell you what they are. Mission of the Seventy, the good parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus visiting Mary and Martha, the Lord's Prayer, the parable of the importunate friend, the blasphemous accusation of the league with Beelzebul as the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil. Jesus denounces the Pharisees after eating breakfast with, the, with one of the Pharisees. The parable of the rich fool, the parable of the waiting servants, the parable of the wise steward. Two tragedies that were not caused by sin. The people who sacrificed and whose blood was mingled with their sacrifices and the people upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Jesus said it was not caused by their sin. Jesus healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath. So there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the, in the intervening, intervening months between the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall and the Feast of Dedication where we are here. So let's get started. John 10, verse 22. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now what is the Feast of Dedication? That was the feast that commemorated the dedication of the temple, the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus in December 165 B.C. This is referring to what happened in approximately 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid emperor, he was one of the Didacoi, the, the generals, or one of the, he inherited one of those uh, kingdoms that sprung out of the breakup of Alexander the Great's empire. And it was mostly, that, that kingdom was mostly in Syria and in, in the Euphrates Valley, the Mesopotamian Valley there. And it's one of its most famous leaders was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the scholars, I looked this up one time trying to track his movements. He went down to Egypt, and I think he went through Israel twice. And they have a lot of trouble distinguishing them out, those trips out. So let, let me just read you a summary of what Antiochus Epiphanes did, at least on one trip through Jerusalem. This is from Adam Clark. And, and remember that Jerusalem was part of the Seleucid Empire at that time. Antiochus had jurisdiction over it. When Antiochus had heard that the Jews had made great rejoicings on account of a report that had been spread of his death, he hastened out of Egypt to Jerusalem, took the city by storm, and slew of the inhabitants in three days 40,000 persons, and 40,000 more he sold for slaves to the neighboring nations. Not contented with this, he sacrificed a great sow on the altar of burnt offerings. And broth being made by his command of some of the flesh, he sprinkled it all over the temple, that he might defile it to the uttermost. Now you can imagine what Jews thought about pigs 
broth being sprinkled all over their temple and having a pig sacrificed on the altar. This guy was a piece of work. After this, the whole of the temple service seems to have been suspended for three years, great dilapidations having taken place also in various parts of the building. So 165 was three years after 168 when B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes went through Jerusalem, burning, killing, and destroying. Now, when they had this Feast of Rededication, a Feast of Dedication, I should call it, I'm sorry, it's also called the Feast of Lights because of all the candles that were lit. This, of course, was not a mosaic temple uh, festival that was put out in the law because it happened very late, 165 B.C., but it's still celebrated today, Hanukkah, of course. Why did John put in this little detail that it was winter? Well, perhaps it was a description for readers who didn't know the Jewish calendar and who did not realize that the Feast of Dedication always took place in the winter in December. That's the NIV Study Bible's idea. Adam Clark denies that. It says everybody would know the season of the feast. It was mentioned to show that it was stormy or rainy weather. That's what happens a lot of times in the winter, which explains why Jesus was walking in Solomon's porch, as we'll see in the next couple of verses. The... It's interesting that this date takes place on 25th Kislev. That was the Jewish month, which corresponds to our December. And of course, it sounds a lot like December 25th. John Gill says it was about December the 10th. Adam Clark says it was about December the 18th. They don't know when it was. It was sometime in December. We go now to verse 23. Jesus was walking in the temple complex in Solomon's colonnade. Probably because it was rainy and stormy, perhaps. That's why he was there. What do we know about Solomon's colonnade? Well, I've got I've got a map right here. And remember, the temple was oriented going from west to east. The westernmost end, you had the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Then you got the Holy Place. You got the lampstand. You got the Golden Ark, Golden Altar of Incense right there at the doorway to the Holy of Holies. Then you got the Table of Showbread. Then you go a little bit further behind a barricade. You got the court of the priest where only the priest could go. Then you go down the stairs and you go into a little square room. That's a square courtyard, I should say. And that is the court of women where, oh, excuse me, I, I left out the court of men. Once you get past the barricade, you're in the, in the court of men, which is a little narrow court. Then you go down the stairs and you get into the court of women and then you go out the eastern gate. Well, once you go out the eastern gate, there was a colonnade there, but right to the south of that eastern gate, on the outside, there was a portico called Solomon's Porch, the Holman Christian Study Bible calls it Solomon's Colonnade, and it was a covered porch with columns on the side, but it was covered, so that means you could get out of the rain. Now, we read about Solomon's colonnade in two places in Acts. Acts 3.11, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, this is the man that was walking and leaping and praising God, guy was holding on to Peter and John, all the people greatly amazed ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. So the disciples did some healing ministry there in the Solomon's porch. At Acts 5.12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. So that's where they met the early church did that was one of their common meeting places it was called solomon's colonnade because it was commonly thought but erroneously thought that the colonnade dated back to solomon's time it didn't according to the niv study bible but it was built on the same spot as the porch that was built by solomon as john gill says it was an imitation of the original porch we go to verse 24 
Then the Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, why did the Jews have any suspense about it? Jesus had given them plenty of evidence that he was the Messiah, but they just wanted him to come out and say it. This, of course, was the most important question that could be asked about Jesus, as the NIV Study Bible points out. And that Study Bible also points out that this question was not easy to answer because of all the different ideas of the Messiah then in vogue. The main one of the main erroneous one of which is that he was going to be a political leader who was going to lead a revolution against the Romans. Now, there's some options as to why the Jews asked him this. First of all, it doesn't say whether it's the Jewish leaders or whether it's just the Jews in general, but I suspect it's the Jewish leaders. Some people speculate they sincerely wanted to know, are you the Messiah? Well, that assumes a lot of goodwill on their part, which they do not show too often during the scriptures. So John Gill and Adam Clark deny that the Pharisees, that the Jewish leaders actually wanted to know whether Jesus was the Messiah. Rather, they say, John Gill and Adam Clark say, rather they were trying to ensnare Jesus. John Gill points out here the horns of the dilemma. If Jesus said no, he was not the Messiah, then the people would disown him, and there goes his ministry. On the other hand, if he said yes, then it would be very easy to accuse Jesus to the Romans and says he's trying to set up a kingdom. You need to arrest him. John 10:25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered, answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. We're going to see here that Jesus really appeals to his miracles over and over again. You, hey, you want to talk about Messiah? Well, see if anybody else can do the works that I did. So... But here's a problem. Jesus says, I did tell you and you don't believe. There's really no one, not written anywhere that Jesus specifically told the Jewish leaders that he was the Messiah. Now, he did tell the Samaritan woman. That was one place. The NIV Study Bible says that's the only place. John 4:26. he says, I am, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. I am he, the one speaking to you. Well, here's an option to resolve this problem of why Jesus said, I did tell you, but it's not recorded anywhere that he did tell them. It's because the general thrust of his teaching made it clear to anyone but the most spiritually obtuse moron that he was the Messiah. I'm just going to read you five passages that we've already covered from John 6, 7, and 8, and you will see that it was very clear he was saying he was the Messiah, and the idiots didn't believe him. John 6:35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes me will ever be thirsty again. Does that sound like Messiah to you? John 7, 37 through 38, on the last and most important day of the festival, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Does that sound pretty messianic? John 8, verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Sounds pretty messianic to me. John 8, 35 through 36, a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. He's claiming to be able to set them free, free from their sins. Does that sound messianic? John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. He even used Yahweh, I am is Yahweh. He even used that phrase that God used to, when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush where God affirmed to Moses that he was, I am. And Jesus says, I am. And of course, a Jew knowing the scriptures would pick up on that in a minute. He was claiming to be the Messiah. So why do they go up there? Are oh, you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. 
I think they were probably looking for a little bit of evidence, you know, so they could quote him directly when they accused him to the, to the Romans. So obviously they didn't believe. So anyway, Jesus appeals to his works. We go to verse 26 and 27. But if you don't believe because you are not my sheep, but, excuse me, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's pointing out to them they were not of the elect. They were not of the sheepfold. Now Jesus has already taught this in the parable of the Good Shepherd in the first part of chapter 10. So I'll just read a couple of those verses for you to show that the sheep hear his voice and they follow just like Jesus said. John 10, 3-5. The doorkeeper opens it, opens the sheepfold for him, for the good shepherd. And the sheep hear his voice. He, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of him, outside to the pasture, inside for protection. The, the, the sheep follow the shepherd. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They would have several flocks in the sheepfold and the shepherd that belonged to a particular flock would call out, and only those sheep would recognize that voice. Interesting characteristic of sheep. And then they would follow that shepherd out. And so Jesus calls out the, the believing Jewish sheep out of the mass of non-believing Jewish sheep, and they hear his voice and they go out. They will never follow a stranger, Jesus continues in John 10, verse 5. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. In other words, you know, there's some people out here that are not going to follow you, Pharisees, because they think you're a stranger. They don't recognize your voice, and they're going to run away. John 10:16. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will they will listen to my voice. That means there's some Gentile sheep out there that are going to listen to Jesus. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd, and one church, one baptism, one faith, Jew and Gentile. Wall of partition broken down. Jesus not only says that the sheep will follow him and hear his voice, they also say that they know the shepherd. Excuse me, he says, he knows the sheep. I know them, he says in verse 27. He's repeating what he said in John 10:14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. I know my own sheep, and they know me. The sheep hear Jesus' voice, but they don't hear the sheep of thieves and robbers. Jesus calls the Pharisees. John 10:8. All who came, who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep didn't listen to them. So Jesus is kind of sticking it to their face. There's some people here, you think you've got everybody in your pocket. There's some people here that are going to follow me. John 10, verse 28 through 29. I give them eternal life, his sheep, and they will never perish ever. Oh, another good Calvinist verse to drive Armenians crazy. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Again, he's just kind of sticking it to the Pharisees. I got sheep, and you're not going to get them, despite all your power. Now, you're not going to get them out of my hand. Now, this idea of Jesus giving eternal life, he's mentioned that already. And I've got three scriptures here, John 3:15. So everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. John 3:36. the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John 5:24. I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now let's look and see, I've mentioned the Armenians here. How do they handle this verse? Because it sounds like nobody's ever going to die because, you know, nobody's going to ever snatch anybody out of Jesus' hand. Well, the Armenians say, yeah, but if you go out and rob a bank and then commit blasphemy and then just you know, start living an ungodly life and turn your back on the Lord, you can 
walked out of Jesus' hand. This verse, say the Arminians, is only referring to enemies of the believer, of the continuing believer, the faithful believer, only those enemies who are trying to destroy the sheep. It's not talking about the sheep who voluntarily walks away. Well, all I've got to say to that is, if God gives somebody eternal life, what does eternal mean? What part of eternal do we not understand? Eternal means forever. So how can somebody then say, okay, I've got eternal life, but now I'm going to jump out of Jesus' hand because he's not holding on to me because of my free will. I jump out of Jesus' hand, and now I don't have eternal life. Well, what? But eternal means forever, starting at the time you believe, forever. Eternal, it goes on and on and on. It never stops. But if you say that you can jump out of Jesus' hand, you just killed eternal life. How do you stop eternal life? How do you stop something that's eternal? Not to mention the fact if you're a son of Jesus, a son of God, impregnated with the Holy Spirit, born of the seed of God, of the living and imperishable Word of God, if you are a son of God, how can you stop being a son? I mean, we can't do that in the natural. Once a son is a son, I don't care how many banks he robs, he's still your son. Doesn't mean the father likes the fact he's robbing banks, but you, you can't get rid of that biological situation, and you're not going to get rid of the existential situation, spiritual situation of the Father and the Christian. The Holy Spirit has, has saved him. God will chastise him, burn him up, whip him around. I mean, he can, God can do a lot of punishing, but he ain't going to send him to hell because he's, because he's one of his sheep. Now, notice that Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Give is a gift. We don't earn eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, I I am paying them eternal life in return for all the good things he did. He never says that. It's, I give them eternal life. John six thirty seven through 39, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. So Jesus gives eternal life to the sheep, and the Father gives the sheep to the, to the Son. So the whole thing is grace, grace, grace. There's nothing we do. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39 in John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Who has given me? It's grace. John 10:30. The Father and I are one. Now, this is, a, of course, a famous verse, and it has a lot of theological impact for such a short verse. First of all, the word one. The Greek is neuter, as the NIV study Bible says, so that means one thing. The Father and I are one thing. They are of one essence. They are of one substance, namely divinity. They're both divine. They're both God. Now, by saying that the Father and the Son have the same essence, the same divine essence, and that they're both God, this cuts against, this knocks down the Arian heresy, which said that Jesus was not truly God. He was a junior God. He didn't quite have the same essence of the Father. On the other hand, when Jesus says the Father and I, he's making a distinction between the Father and the Son. And so it's, he's not saying that the Father and I are the same person. This would be the Sabellian heresy, the modalist heresy, where you've got one God who shows up with three different masks, if you will, or three different roles, three different modes, the Father, the Father mode, the Son mode, and the Trinity mode, but it's still just one person. No, there's two different persons the Father, and the Son. So the Father and I guard against Sabellianism, and the One guards against Arianism, all in that little six-verse, six-word verse. And notice the R is plural, the Father and I are, that's plural, 
So there's more than one person. There's two persons here, not just one. So away with the Sabellian heresy. Maybe that doesn't really matter to you much now in this life, but it was a big deal back in early church history, as you know. Let's look at another verse where Jesus shows that he is one with the Father. John 17:21 and 22. High priestly prayer, night of the Lord's the Last Supper. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that you may believe you sent me. There's that unity again. The Father's and the Son, the Son's and the Father, the Father's one with the children, the Christians and the Christians are one with the Father. Three out of those four relationships of unity are present right here in this verse in John chapter 17. Anyway, the unity is so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. Now you've got the unity between each Christian is the same as the unity between the Father and the Son. May they be one as we are one. So there's your divinity. They're both divinity. The Father and I are one. He said it privately to the disciples in John 17. In John 10, he said it openly. In response to a question, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly if you are. Well, how plain can you get? The Father and I are one. So let's go to John 10, verse 31 through 32. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. The Jews, of course, took Jesus' words to be blasphemy. They understood perfectly well that he was claiming to be the Father, and stoning was the proper punishment for blasphemy. Leviticus 24:16 says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the foreign resident or the native. Well, let's assume that Jesus committed blasphemy, which he didn't, of course. But let's assume he did. They still didn't have the right to stone him right then. Where's the trial? You've got to have a trial before you just... A stoning is the execution of a judicial punishment. The execution of the results of a trial. There was no trial. This is the third time they tried to stone Jesus. The first time was in John 5:18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The second time was in John 8:58-59. Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. The I am, of course, means Yahweh, which is that's the word that God used when he spoke to Abraham. I am, which means I'm God. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, I am, which means I am God. At that, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. So he was already threatened with stoning there too. Two times in addition to here in John 10, verse 31. Jesus responds, verse 32, Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these works are you stoning me for? Now this is pure sarcasm on Jesus' fault part. Obviously, he wasn't asking a question. Gee, which one of the healings that I did are you going to stone me for? No, he was being sarcastic with these jerks. (laughs) Because you don't stone people for healing people that were born blind from birth. You don't do that. And so he was going right back at them. Now, the NIV, instead of good works, they say the great miracles that I did. Works and miracles. Works is often a term used to refer to miracles. And Jesus often referred to his miracles as proof of his messiahship. I've mentioned this before. He, he really relied on miracles. In fact, we're going to see in just a couple verses, about five more verses in verses 37 and 38. He said this, if I am not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works 
This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Believe the works. Now, it's obviously referring to miracles, but the NIV Study Bible says the reference here includes Jesus' miracles, but the underlying reference is to works in general. I don't believe that. It's talking about miracles. The whole context is miracles. Works that are fine and noble in character, first of all, says the NIV Study Bible. I mean, no, he was talking about healing. Here's what John Gill says. Healing the sick and all manners of diseases. This is the works that are being referred to. Healing the sick and all manners of manner of diseases, dispossessing devils, cleansing lepers, giving sight to the blind, causing the dumb to speak, the deaf to hear, and the lame to walk, which were not only works of power but of mercy and beneficence, and therefore are called good works as well as they were great and miraculous ones. Here's a reference from Acts 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. So healing is called good there. So good works means miracles, folks. Jesus did miracles so that it would point people to the Messiah, and his miracles were always documentable. They were irrefutable. There was too too much evidence. There was none of this stuff that charismatics tend to do is get a healing done in the corner of the world somewhere, and, and they can't prove it. No, 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 that's not a good procedure. John 10, verses 33 through 36. The Jews, obviously understanding the sarcasm, the Jews say in verse 33, We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You're just a mere man, you're not God. Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your scripture, I said, you are gods? If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? All right, what verse was Jesus quoting to the Pharisees? Psalm 82, 6. I said you are gods and you are all sons of the Most High. Now in Psalms 82, 6, the word in English has got a lowercase capital, uh, lowercase initial letter because it refers to leader, the leaders of the Jews. does not refer to to divinities. Does the NIV study Bible and John Gill say the word means judges or other leaders or rulers whose tasks were divinely appointed? That's all it means. They were men calling themselves gods, and Jesus uses an a fortiori argument. Hey, if a man can call himself a god, nobody complains about that. Why can't a god call himself a god? I am God. I am the Father of one. I'm God. Why can't I call myself God? So he's letting them hold it. Notice Oh, let me say this. It's obvious here that the Jews know that Jesus is claiming to be God. They're trying to stone him. They're trying to get him from blasphemy. But have you ever noticed how that a lot of people today says, oh, you know, Jesus was just trying to be a good teacher. He never claimed to be God. He's just a good teacher. No, he wasn't. He was claiming to be God. Either he was God, like he said he was, or either he was deluded or he was a liar. But don't give me this hogwash that he was A good teacher, this is your typical liberal schlop, that makes absolutely no logical sense. He was either God or he was a fake and a fraud or a deluded lunatic. Lord, liar, lunatic, I think is how C.S. Lewis put it in one of his works. Jesus here is claiming more than a unity of sentiments with the Father. He's claiming a unity of nature with the Father, as Adam Clark put it. Now, this little parenthetical statement, of course, is a wonderful statement, and and the scripture cannot be broken. Let me read that to you again in verse 36. If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, he's quoting Psalm 82, 6, and the scripture cannot be broken. 
And so Jesus here says, you know, of course. Now, you know, we have to agree with the Scripture because the Scripture cannot be broken. It's true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And don't any dead-blasted liberal go around saying that Scripture's got errors in it because it doesn't. Now, if he can say that about the Old Testament Scriptures, how much more can he say that about the New Testament Scriptures and his apostles who he sent out? If you believe me, you will believe the apostles who were sent by me. Peter referred to Paul's writing as Scripture. said they were sort of hard to understand, but he called them Scripture. So... The scripture cannot be broken. It should be repeated like a mantra to any Bible-disbelieving, liberal, screwed-up person that you run into. It's quick. It's easy. I had one. I was doing a leading a, it was a church meeting, really, in my house church in Shantou, China. And this liberal guy, he had, Wesley was in his name. I think his name was Wesley. And he had five generations of Wesleys. He was the most, well, they started out being Orthodox Armenian, but now they'd gotten liberal by the time he got down to this guy. And every time he would read a scripture, he would say, it was a, it was a Pauline letter. It was obviously a letter from Paul. And he'd say, Paul or whoever this was, Paul, whoever this was. And boy, I was tempted to say, hey, buddy, the scripture cannot be broken. It's just a, it's a phrase that we all remember. When people start saying the Bible, well, I don't like this scripture. I think I'm going to just throw that one out because I don't like it. It's too hard on me. It's too hard on my flesh. We go to John 10, verse 37 through 38. If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me then. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, more quote-unquote allegedly blasphemous statements by God of Jesus that the Father's in him and he's in the Father, which shows complete and utter union with the Father. I and the Father are one. Another way of saying that. And so he's saying, well, hey, you know, you can you can just believe me fine. If if I'm not doing my Father's works, okay, well, don't believe me. But uh, you're going to have a hard time not believing that I did the Father's works. Show me somebody else can who can heal a man born blind from birth. Show me. You cannot. I did it. So maybe you better believe me. That's basically, in my paraphrases, what he's saying. Then you'll understand that I'm not blaspheming anybody. I'm not blasphemous at all. I'm just stating a fact. And so, as I said earlier, and I'll say it again, verse 37, he's appealing to his miracles. Why did he appeal to those miracles? Because the Jews couldn't deny him to any witnesses. In fact, a lot of times they saw the miracles themselves. And then once you have to admit the truth of the miracles, as the Pharisees did, then they had another problem. Why would a bad, evil, fake man, fake Messiah, do these kind of miracles? Miracles of compassion and healing. Now, when Jesus says that the Father is in me and I and the Father, that in there, do a word search on this is great. It just means in union with. In union with. You can translate it that way. I've got six kinds of union that can be shown scripturally. I don't have the sites with me. I've been mentioning them as I've been going through John everywhere in John. But let me let's, let's just do this as a Bible study one time. Find out where it says, number one, the Father is in the Son. Number two, the Son is in the Father. Let, let's put it this way. Number one, the Father is in intimate union with the Son. Number two, the Son is in intimate union with the Father. Number three, the Father is in intimate union with Christians. Number four, Christians are in intimate union with the Father. Number five, the Son, Jesus, is in intimate union with Christians. Number six, Christians are in intimate union with the Son. It's easy to do. And you don't hear people talk about that too much, this union with Christ. You've got to get into the Eastern Orthodox apotheosis type stuff to really get this union with Christ. And it is a sad lack in Western theology, and especially in Reformed theology. You know, they always say that John Calvin is the, is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. 
And, you know, I believe, if I remember correctly, in the Institutes of Calvinists talk about union with Christ. But I don't know what's happened in modern-day Presbyterianism. You don't hear about it too much. At least I don't. Of course, I'm not a Presbyterian anymore. But, I mean, look, reading on the Internet, reading Reformed theologians, I do do a lot of that. And you just don't hear about it that much. You have to go to the Keswick people, those terrible people who say let go and let God. Oh, the Reformers hate that. Oh, the people who say that we're not sanctified by works, but we're, we're passive. We let the Holy Spirit do the work for us, and we're passive. And all the other nonsense that reformers say about sanctification. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, do not listen to a Presbyterian when he talks to you about sanctification, because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Rather, go to the Keswick people. Now, they ain't perfect either. Don't get me wrong. But at least they understand union with Christ. Better than the Keswick people, go to the exchanged life people. That's what Hudson Taylor used to call it, or at least somebody called it. And I think that did come from the Keswick movement in the 19th century. But go to the exchange life. You can't go wrong with that. We are in union with our Father, both with the Father and with the Son. And I didn't even mention the Holy Spirit. You can find verses that talk about it being in the Spirit or the Holy Spirit being in us. We talk about those a little bit more often. I mean, when you talk about unity, when you talk about being in union with the God, that doesn't mean we're mystics. It doesn't mean that we lose our individuality. It doesn't mean that we become God. You know, we're, we're not pantheists. We're not mystics. There is a distinction between the Father and the Son, just like there's a distinction between my wife and me, but still, we are in intimate union, and we ought to talk about that more in the modern church, in my humble opinion. John 10, verse 39. Then they were trying again to seize him, yet he eluded their grasp. Why were they trying to send him? Were they trying to stone him, or were they trying to bring him to trial? Difference of opinion on that. The NIV study Bible suggests that they were trying to stone him, and they also suggest they were trying to bring him to trial. See, obviously, it, because they needed to try him first before they stoned him, but maybe they just got so mad they were picking up stones to stone him extrajudicially without a trial. John Gill denies that they were trying to stone him. He says they were trying to bring him to trial first. I don't know how he knows that. John Gill knows everything. I don't know how he knows that. He says that the Jewish leaders probably felt their case was even stronger now that they had gotten Jesus' explicit words that he was he and the Father were one so they could bring him to trial and get a conviction a lot easier make, to make it uh, operate by the color of law. It's unclear how Jesus escaped the, uh, the Jews. The NIV and Study Bible and Adam Clark say, in my opinion, he probably just melted into the crowds. This was a feast, feast of dedication. There were probably plenty of people there. This is not the first time he's done that, Luke 4.30, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. That was at Nazareth when they were getting ready to throw him off the cliff, John 8.59. And that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. This was when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, using that, that majestic divine phrase, I am, just like God the Father used the I am. So they tried to stone him then. This is the third time he got out, got out, of, out of the out of the temple complex without getting stoned. And I'm sure, you know, they got to go pick up the stones to do this. That's going to take some time. He just probably slid off into the crowd and got out of there. This was a festival time. There was a lot of people that enabled him to do that. All right, so that's the end of the story, basically, of Jesus claiming to be the father, one with the Father and the, Jesus, and the Jews trying to stone him at the Feast of Tabernacles. And that normally would be the place I would conclude this audio. However, we have three verses at the end of the chapter initializing his Perean ministry. This is the finish of his later Judean ministry, but then he's going to escape from Jerusalem and go out into the area just across the Jordan, east of the Jordan River, on the other side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem in Perea. And he's going to do that 
And then he's going to make his triumphal entry back into Jerusalem during Passion Week, at which time he is killed and uh, resurrected. So we're going to get to look at these three verses here as we introduce the later Perean ministry. So he departed again across the Jordan. This is in John 10, verses 40 through 42. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. All right, you go just a few miles uh, down from Jerusalem east, and you cross the Jordan River. And most people say this is Bethany beyond the Jordan where John had been baptizing. However, I have run across a more modern opinion from, from D.A. Carson, who says that where G. John the Baptist was baptizing was in Batania, which is far to the north up in Old Testament Bashan, which is the area uh, uh, right neighboring Syria to the, and it's east of the Golan Heights. Uh, today it's called the Golan Heights, the east of uh, the Sea of Galilee, way up there. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I don't pretend to know the answer, but wherever it was, he went to that deserted place. It was desert to get away from these Jews who were trying to kill him. He remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true. Now, they weren't trying, the crowds were not trying to denigrate John. They were just pointing out a fact. John never did any miracles, but Jesus did miracles. And so they're trying to say that not that John was a bad prophet, but that Jesus was greater than a prophet. And notice also that although they said Jesus, John never did a sign, they did say that everything John said about the man was true. Therefore, they're saying John was a prophet. He predicted the, about things about the Messiah. Many believed in him there. So Jesus is still picking up adherence as time goes on. Now, notice Jameson Foster and Brown point out that many believe there across the Jordan because of the effective, long-lasting results of John the Baptist's preaching ministry. And I've noticed this talking to various people like in China. I remember talking to a, a guy that got on a bus. He was a country guy, kind of. And he was in an area of near Shantou, which is in Guangdong province near the coast. And I had found out, either later, before this or later, that there was an old German missionary, a doctor, who had come to Shanto in the 1800s. And this old man on the bus told me he was a fourth-generation Christian, that there were Christians all around there because of what that doctor had done. And that's something I think that we, people like me who like instant results, we don't think about the long-term effects. When you start planting the gospel in a certain area, a lot of times you got first, second, third, fourth-generation people. It keeps going on, on and on and on. It's another place in India. Gosh, I wish I could remember the province. It's in the northeast. I had a colleague who lived there. He said, everybody's a Christian there. Shalom, I think it was called. I forgot. But uh, he said that for generations that uh, the, you know Hindus and, and Muslims were not to be found. So here John the Baptist did a true work, and he, he prepared the way for Jesus to come, and many believed in Jesus because of what John had already done. And I say that to... Because if you happen to be doing a ministry where you don't see a lot of fruit, keep on working. Keep on planting the seeds, plowing up the ground, because you never know when the rain's going to come and more seeds are going to sprout. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with John 10, verses 12 through 22 through 42. This is the story of Jesus at the Feast of Dedication, where he claims to be one with the Father, and the Jews try to stone him. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you listen to the next audio in which we talk about the beginning of Jesus' Perean ministry. We're going to skip a lot of stuff that's recorded in Luke about that Perean ministry, and then we're going to get to the point where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which is recorded in John chapter 11. 
Hope to see you then and hope you enjoyed this audio.